Hey, everybody. It's Amy Walter, editor-in-chief of The Cook Political Report. You're listening to The Odd Years, a political podcast designed for the off years, literally the odd-numbered years where there are no scheduled federal elections. Today, we have the distinct honor and pleasure to hear from the GOAT of political journalism, the one and only Judy Woodruff. Judy got her start in political reporting in the 70s, covering the Georgia legislature. From there, she hit the campaign trail to cover a little-known Georgia governor and presidential candidate named Jimmy Carter. She followed him to the White House, where she became NBC White House correspondent for five years. From there, he was on to PBS, where she served as chief Washington correspondent for what was then known as the McNeil Laird NewsHour. In the early 1990s, Judy headed over to CNN, which is where I first met her. She co-anchored the original Inside Politics, which was required viewing for anyone who was in or around politics in that era. In 2007, Judy returned to PBS, and in 2013, she and the late Gwen Ifill were named co-anchors of the NewsHour, the first two women to serve as anchors of a national broadcast. After Gwen's death in 2016, Judy served as solo anchor of the NewsHour until she stepped down from that role earlier this year. She's now a special correspondent for the NewsHour, where she has launched a new project called America at a Crossroads. I don't know of another journalist who garners the depth and breadth of respect and appreciation as Judy does. She is fair but unflinching, gentle but unrelenting, and most important, she is curious and open-minded. Oh, and she did it all as a pioneer, one of the first women to serve as a high-profile on-air journalist reporting on national news and politics. Now, for me personally, Judy's been a mentor, an ally, an inspiration, and a friend. I'm very excited to introduce you to her and her new project. Our conversation took place on April 3rd, just as her new series launched. Well, hello, Judy Woodruff. Thank you so much for joining me for this special episode. Many of our listeners will know Judy from her many stages along uh, the, the media landscape, most recently at the PBS NewsHour. But Judy, you have left the anchor chair, but you have not left the reporting. So I want to jump right into the new series that you have started called America at a Crossroads. And... It is, as you have written about on the PBS website, the goal is to better understand divisions in American politics. So let's start with you just giving everybody the what, what was the impetus for doing this, especially for somebody who has covered politics for as many years as you have? Well, if uh, just to put things in perspective, if you count the first year I was a reporter, literally the first year, it was 1970, I was covering Jimmy Carter's uh, campaign for governor, his second campaign for governor of Georgia. I was brand new. I had never been a reporter. I'd never taken a course in journalism. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was covering the governor's race. Um, so it was baptism by fire. That was 52 years ago. Um, so yes, I've been doing this a long time uh, in Georgia for um, eight years or so, eight or nine years, and then uh, in and then here in Washington and 
around the country as much as they would let me get on an airplane or get into a car and go somewhere uh, outside of outside of D.C. Um, but Amy, to answer your question, um, I as I reached a point in my life and in my career when I thought, you know, I've been doing this anchoring thing for a while. I've loved every minute of it, well, almost every minute. Um, <laughs> but I knew the time was coming when I really was ready to to stop doing that and uh, look in a different direction uh, at the news hour, stay at the news hour, but continue in a reporting capacity. I wanted to turn it over to the next generation. And by the way, Amna Navaz and Jeff Bennett are doing a fantastic job uh, as anchors today. Um, but I thought about, what did I want to do a project? Did I just want to be available? And the thing that loomed larger than anything, and this was this goes back a couple of years, was frankly how divided the country is. And I've covered politics, as I said, for decades. I've covered Democrats, Republicans. I've covered the people disagreeing with each other, having different views, yelling at each other sometimes. But I've never seen it as personal and as deep as it feels to me as it is today. And I thought if there's something that I can illuminate uh, help people understand, maybe that's it. And so the more I thought about it, the more I sort of zeroed in on the idea of a project looking at um, our division as a country and understanding that it's healthy that we have these debates and disagreements in American politics. That's what democracy is all about. We don't want to live in a place where we're not allowed to speak uh, speak up and say what we think. So thank God we are able to do that. But on the other hand, when families can't get together over Thanksgiving dinner, when neighbors have stopped speaking to each other, when uh, people, some people um, we read are moving in order to be closer to people they agree with politically, something different is happening. And I wanted to understand that better. And I decided while I'm still able and have the energy and the enthusiasm that, I've, uh, that I do thankfully have, that I wanted to travel around the country and talk to ordinary Americans about what they think, how they think the country's doing, what do they think about how our government's doing, what do they think of our leaders, and why do they think we're so divided, and do they think it's a good thing or not, and what do they think can be done about it? I do want to look at how people are trying to address this, so we can talk about that, but that's what I wanted to do, and also, frankly, talk to some people who've written and studied it, so there are, it turns out there are a lot of people who've already studied this whole polarization thing, going back years and trying to talk to some of them as well. And you talked about this in your, thus far, two of these have aired, correct? That's right. And the, another right. one will air on Monday night, uh, is airing. As you and I are talking, it'll air on Monday night, April 3rd. And I want to go to the very first one because, again, Judy, I don't, I don't mean to keep harping on the many years, but what of my... One of my favorite things about the opening to your series is there's a lot of coverage of Judy Woodruff over the years. Judy Woodruff at the White House with Ronald Reagan and with Bill Clinton and with George Bush, right? You've been, and as you pointed out, with Jimmy Carter. And raise that because we talk a lot when we talk about division, as you pointed out, that it's never been this bad before, that there seems to be, though, a little bit of nostalgia for a time when politics, quote unquote, made more sense or when things were better. 
uh, things weren't as divided as they are now. And I want to really sort of dig into this wistfulness about it. And especially from your perspective, being a woman covering politics in the era you were doing so couldn't have been easy. And I would love to get your perspective on this sense of the good old days and what it was like to be somebody who was, let's face it, not a white guy in the field of politics. When I started out, Amy, there were very few women reporters, period, either in print or in broadcast, radio or television. There were a few, but not very many. They were the hardy souls who had uh, ventured out there, put themselves on the line and were working really hard, but they were very few. And when I graduated from college in 1968, um, I had just decided that year that I wanted to look at journalism. I had been thinking about working in politics, actually. But the second summer I worked on Capitol Hill for my congressman, um, I happened to be from Georgia. I'd gone to high school in Georgia, grew up as an army brat, so I'd lived the peripatetic military brat child life. The women I met on Capitol Hill in the summer of 1967 said to me, no, you really don't want to come right back to Washington because you'll be a gopher. You'll be the coffee girl. And I took that literally and I thought, I don't want to do that. I want to do something that's going to make a difference. I want to contribute in some way. I want to learn. I don't want to be, you know, relegated to the coffee uh, and what we call the robotype machine, which is what we use to copy letters and so forth. But so I went back to Duke and that year I talked to a couple of my professors. One of them said, you ever think about covering politics? I love the idea started thinking about it. Of course, it was too late for me to sign up for journalism. So I ended up interviewing for a job as an entry-level job at, at any of the television uh, or news organizations in Atlanta. Then there were three, ABC, CBS, and NBC affiliates. Uh, two of them didn't really give me the time of day. They met with me, but didn't say anything. The news director, however, at the ABC station uh, met me in the lobby this was April of 1968. We sat there and he listened to me for a few minutes and said, okay, I'll hire you. You can be the newsroom secretary. And I was ready to start at a entry level, bottom level. I was ready to empty the trash, which it did turn out I did have to empty the trash. But he hired me to be the person who answered the phone and took dictation from him, cleaned the film because we were using film. And then as I got up to leave, he said, and I thanked him. I said, thank you, Mr. Conover. And he said, of course. He said, how could I not hire somebody with legs like yours? So mm -hmm. this was 1968. And I would like to tell you that I had some brilliant cutting comment and just said, forget it. But of course, <laughs> I was stunned and I didn't know what to say. And I sort of slunk out the door, went to work a few months later as the newsroom secretary. And then as I tried to spend time going out with the reporters and the camera crews to learn what they were doing, by then there was a new news director. And I talked to him about it one day and he said, why would you want to do that? We already have a woman reporter. So, of course, what was going on in politics and before that I thought about majoring in math and I was told women weren't welcome math. The bottom line is it was the 1960s and the women's movement was coming into being, but it really hadn't taken hold. And that's the world we lived in. And you asked about women covering politics, and there were very few. I could count, I knew there was one woman, Celestine Sibley, who wrote a column for the 
Atlanta Journal Constitution. Um, I knew who she was, didn't, you know, dare to even um, try to talk to her. I was so intimidated by what she did. And there was a woman who covered politics for the NBC station. I was eventually hired by the CBS station in Atlanta when their reporter covering the Georgia legislature left for health reasons and their only woman reporter left to go have a baby. So um, it turns out that news director who ends up is still a good friend of mine. He's is still around all these years later. He hired me, Bob Brennan, to cover the Georgia legislature. Um, I thought I knew and wasn't something there a governor it. that year named Lester Jimmy Maddox Carter? Maybe. Well, Lester Maddox was governor from 1966 to 1970, was elected in 66. He was the famous segregationist who ran the, had the, owned the Pickwick restaurant. Just a, a really sorry saga in Georgia life and Georgia politics. But yeah, and there were very few women. There were one or two. And it was the beginning, Amy, of already women being compared with one another because there were so few of us. The woman working for the NBC station, her name was Gloria Lane. And when I was hired as a reporter covering the legislature for CBS, people would say, well, what's it like today for Gloria versus Judy? I mean, there were lots of other reporters, print and television, who were men, but they were already looking to compare the women. And then fast forward five years later, when I was hired by NBC, and then a year or so after that, started covering politics, I could already see women were being compared to one another because they were just so, we were still novelties. And the people we covered, I will say it's a mixture of re uh, reactions that I had. There were some folks in the legislature, overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly white, who, you know, treated me with respect and um, just like I was somebody. And, and then there were others who were the good old boys and it was Miss Judy or Little Miss Judy or Pretty Little Girl, you know, that kind of thing. And I just, you know, I just let it roll off my back. I just ignored it and kept going. I never tried to make a big issue of it because I figured this is, we're going through a phase. We'll get through this. But that's where we were. There weren't very many women. And those right. of us who were there just had to listen to it and put up with it. And thankfully, Amy, I never encountered anything, which some women did, which was a yeah. physical uh, assault or right. harassment. You know, I never experienced anything like that. So. I don't diminish what a number of other women went through in that era. Right. I mean, that's, as I said, one of the challenges, I'm sure you get this question a lot, is this idea that if we just went back to an era where you had Walter Cronkite, we had only right. three news stations, we would all agree on a central truth. But the reality, as you pointed out, Judy, was that a lot of voices were not included in that conversation when you only had three uh, news stations and one news director who decided, well, we have enough women already or we have enough people of color, we don't need to have their perspective. Let's talk about, um, I mean, again, this is a big issue you're trying to wrestle. And I, I have to say, it's been really enjoyable watching the, the first two of the, the series, the fir first two packages, 
because you get into two things. One, the history piece, how we became as identified with with our own party. And I want you to talk a little bit about that. It, 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 this was specifically the second episode where you talked about identity and how that has really come to define our politics. And as somebody who covered politics in Georgia, obviously you are more familiar than maybe many about the role that race has played, always played in politics. But it seems as if we're at a different place now. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, and I'm so glad you mentioned that. But in that second segment, one of the principal voices is that of Juliana Mason, who is a professor on the faculty at Johns Hopkins. She was at University of Maryland. She's written a couple of books um, that try to get at what's happened with this polarization. Why are we identifying more and more by our political views than anything else? And among other things, Professor Mason looks at um, how it used to be that people belong to not just the bowling league, but maybe the neighborhood garden club or the bridge club, or I don't know, the VFW. Yeah, like the Elk Club or the, whatever you, you were. Lions right. Club, Elks Club. There were a number of different things that people identified with, um, maybe the school they went to, and people obviously still do that to some extent. But that today, as as these other organizations, it's not that they're not around anymore, but they I think it's with the rise of of media, the way media is so organized today, so much of it, unfortunately, in my view, around one political point of view or another, people increasingly identify by their party. I'm calling her Juliana. It's Liliana Mason. My apologies, Liliana Mason. She looks at, at how this political identity has taken over for many of us, the, the majority of what we call identity. And we think of ourselves almost as belonging to a group, a tribe. And we think, well, the tribe, our group, believes this. I believe that. And I really don't want to, I don't want to separate very much from that because the tribe, the group um, may not think of me as a member anymore. I want to be close to these people. I like these people. That's who I am. Um, And she does it much more eloquently and with greater scholarship than what I'm describing right here. But the bottom line is that Americans today are simply more, not just more divided. I mean, there, and we saw this from the Pew Research Center in the first report that we did. People's views on issues have gone from here in the early 90s to here in in the last few years. So we are farther apart uh, on issues and we identify with our political group more tightly, more fiercely, if you will. And the other thing that's going on is we think worse of the people on the other side, that um, we have this notion that they're not only, they not only have the wrong idea, but they are immoral or they're lazy. I mean, I was, I was struck by the, some of the research I've seen that shows this rising view of the other side as as just bad people, people you don't want to spend time with. You wouldn't want your child to marry one of them. And that's all happened, Amy, and you've been watching it closely too in the last 10, 15, 20 years in particular. I identify it from what I've read as as kind of starting in the early 90s, around the time of the, some people call it the Gingrich Revolution, the contract with America. 
when there was just this fierce, you know, anti, you know, each side was digging in Gingrich anti-Clinton, Clinton anti-Republican. And it grew. And then certainly in 2000, with the contested election, the Supreme Court deciding Bush v. Gore, there was a sense, oh, my gosh, that election has been stolen from Democrat. Uh, along comes Barack Obama, a lot of Republicans. You hear this language from Donald Trump and others that he's not born in the United States and on and on. I mean, I could go through all of it. But the bottom line is this negativity has festered. And it's become more personal. And, and so fixing it or addressing it has just become much more complex right, than, than I think we ever. And believed. that's and I guess that's my uh, overarching question for you is at the end of this series, do you want there to be an answer? Like, here's how we fix this. I'm sure people ask you all the time. OK, so, Judy, how do we fix it? Or is it more of an, it's an exploration and an understanding of all the complexities of this that are not going to be fixed by one or two things? It's very much the latter, Amy. And I've yeah. been busy lowering expectations because you're right. A number of people have said to me, oh, well, you're going to, at the end of two years, you're going to tell us what we're going to do about it. I've repeatedly said, I do not expect that we're going to have some miracle answer. We are going to be looking at efforts to bring people together. And by the way, it turns out there are now thousands of groups started out at dozens and now and then hundreds. And now there are thousands of groups at the national level, and especially at the local level that are working to bring communities together, bridging, they're calling them bridging groups, groups like Common Ground, More in Common. Um, and I could name a number of them. So there are groups that are trying to do that, but it's one at a time. It's in one community or we'll have a town meeting or a discussion and try to bring people together. Having that translate to the level of, for example, presidential politics is a leap. Yeah. So no, I don't expect at all. I mean, I'd love to say we're going to find a way through this. I don't expect that. But what I do hope to do is illuminate it, to shine a light on what is going on, to hear why people feel so negatively about the other side and why they hold so fiercely to their own views so that maybe we can at least understand each other. I mean, part of what's going on is people stop listening to the other side. They just assume, oh, you're an R, you're a D, then you're an extreme liberal or you're an extreme conservative you know, you're a MAGA or you're a this or a that, or, you know, names are thrown around. Um, and instead of hearing who that person is, what are some of their experiences and how do they arrive at their views? It doesn't mean we're suddenly going to all agree. That's not going to happen. And, and it shouldn't happen. I mean, we should, as I say, it started out saying, I mean, we, in a democracy, we should be allowed to have different opinions. But this idea that we can't even have a conversation with each other problems can't. I mean, look at Washington. It's defined by gridlock right now. I mean, members of Congress can barely sit down and deal with issues from the debt limit, immigration. I mean, you just name it. The tough issues, guns are not being addressed. And so my view is that anything we can do to shine a light and help people understand and hear each other, maybe that'll be helpful. 
Well, how do you do it, Judy? You've been in this business for a long time, and yet you seem optimistic. You are not cynical. Um, where does that come from? That is a really good question. I am um, innately an optimistic person. I just have to believe that um, things are going to turn out because I just don't choose to think about the alternative. I don't like to think about a dark future for any of us, for our country, for the world. I, I want to believe that humankind is going to just keep on improving. I mean, goodness, you know, when you think about where humanity was a few thousand years ago or a few hundred years ago, we were killing right. each other in large numbers. Look at the wars, the people who died, you know, across the planet. Um, we've gotten better in that way. We do have a United Nations. You can argue about how much difference it makes as an institution. Um, and we're at least talking to each other when there are still wars. People are dying in Ukraine uh, right now. There are parts of the world where people are treated terribly. We know that there's repression. Many authoritarian countries, most countries don't have freedom of speech, freedom of the press, but, but poverty has improved. So speaking very, very broadly, I think the human condition is better than it was. Having said that, um, we're now dealing with technology that is overrunning our ability to even understand what it is with artificial intelligence, AI, with Social media, we can do so many things that we never could do before. And it's putting us in places that we're not ready to be. And right. I would say for all the good that it's done, it's also contributed to polarization because people can now choose where to get their information. And it can be totally different from where your neighbor down the street gets his or her information. Right. So we can have our body of beliefs built on completely right. separate bodies of fact. And it's, so it's we, not even neighbor down the street. I think in our family, if you walked around <laughs> the house, every single person was watching something different on their individual devices, right? So it, yeah. if, if you can, you can have a challenge of just, you know, who you're surrounded by, but I could be surrounded by a lot of different people. But if I choose to cocoon myself in a, whether it's a, T TVs, well, we don't use TV screens, I guess, anymore. This generation just uses Training. iPod or iPhone screens, but that's becoming a reality. And you touched upon this a little bit in the second episode. I assume you're going to talk about it a little bit more, but the role that media plays in exacerbating or helping to create this division. And where do we go? From here, we're not going back to the Walter Cronkite days. Hmm. So how do we manage all of this? I mean, to me, that is one of the 64,000, not 64,000 isn't very much money anymore. $64 billion question. Yeah. What do we do about the fact that we are getting our information from different places and the fact that so much of the media today is about opinion and not about news gathering, what I call old-fashioned news reporting, which is fact gathering, trying to understand, um, you know, how big is our budget deficit? How big is the debt? How long is it going to take to pay it off? What would it take? I mean, just basic information like that. I mean, I think we need to better understand what's happening in our country, again, with regard to 
immigration with regard to to race relations. Big some of these big issues that are coming before the Supreme Court. And by the way, one of the stories we're looking at, and I just come back from Wisconsin, is looking at the role now that we've now that legislatures and, and governors and look at Washington too have are in gridlock, can't agree. In the state of Wisconsin, you got a very Republican state legislature, a Democratic governor. They're often in gridlock. So it's now up to the state Supreme Court to resolve some of the biggest questions of our time for them. And, and so one seat on the state Supreme Court, which is what they're voting on, becomes hugely important. And, and you could say that's playing out in other parts of the country. It's certainly playing out in Washington. We're asking the United States Supreme Court to settle a question that some people believe should be settled by elected right by our elected representative. But to get back to your question, I wish I had a formula for what it was going to be. I know there are now so many different wonderful groups that I've been introduced to that are working on strengthening local journalism, because as we know, as local journalism has disappeared in so many communities, there are no eyes and ears keeping an eye on city council, boards of education, local business decisions, not to mention police, law enforcement. So into that vacuum rushes in social media, misinformation, disinformation, and the option for people to say, well, I, I heard this. And somebody says, well, I read that. And how do you, how does a community come together to fix things or even address things if each side or all sides are getting different information? So it is clearly a challenge. Um, I'm encouraged that there are so many groups out there trying to do something. There's a great, great group I've just learned about in the last few months, the American Journalism Project. They're trying to, to lift up uh, efforts to rebuild local journalism. I think those are all, they all matter a lot. But it's something that we have to deal with as a country, as American citizens too. Um, Judy, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to ask you a couple of fun questions. Uh-oh. All right. So I get asked this question a lot, and I don't necessarily have an answer for it, but maybe you do. Your favorite political movie TV show? Oh, my gosh. Um, boy, that's tough. Or you can just be like me and say, I do it for a living. I don't watch it as fun. <laughs> which is the truth that I don't. I want to watch something that I don't cover. You know, there's so many. I don't even know where to begin. I'm thinking of all the president's men, but I, but that was- Yeah, all the president's men. I mean, that's a good, that's a good one. It's politics. It's, you know, but but you're right. It's not about an election. Exactly. Um, Candidate, Manchurian. (laughs) Right. um, In a a dark sense. But no, it's it's tough to choose. So maybe all the president's men. Um, all right. Now, can you remember and by the way, the first... I've seen, may I just say, Amy, that Martha Mitchell, it turns out, played a bigger role than I realized at the time. And there's been a documentary done about her that I saw not too long ago. So they should have said all the president's men and women. Um, the Martha Mitchell, did you watch the Marcha, Martha Mitchell? Uh, what, what was it called? It was a. What did they call it? What was the name Netflix of it? Netflix show. Was that right? Yes. Um, we just we just watched it a few weeks ago, but I thought it was so telling. 
they went to extremes to try to keep her quiet. Yep. Yeah. I've heard very good things about that. Do you remember the first political figure that you met? Somebody that stands out to you? Trying to think. My family was pretty apolitical, so we didn't go to political rallies or... Um, I remember in middle school, junior high school, talking to everybody about the 1960 presidential election. But meeting someone, I think, Amy, that was that was a long way, a, a, a lot later. Um, college. So when you were actually in your job as a reporter was really... Oh, yeah. The, that the, was, the, the first time that you were around political figures. Met, and was there somebody that you met that really stood out in those early days of reporting? Obviously, you had Jimmy Carter, but anybody else well, that Jimmy you were like, Carter, I can't believe I I'm sitting here with this person. I know. I know. The person who I think made a, an impression on me because I had a chance to interview him was Hubert Humphrey. He came through Atlanta. I want to say it was in 1974, maybe. Um, it was when I was covering Georgia politics. And it might have been 73. I've got to go back and one of these days I've got to figure out when it was. But he was every bit his reputation. You know, he was considered, um, I mean, his what was his nickname? The Happy Warrior or something like that. He was in town to, I think he was meeting with local politicians. But when I sat down to talk to him, I wanted to ask him about, a, you know, everything going on in the country at that time. And I just remember he had this huge smile on his face and his eyes were dancing around and he was just so engaged and so energetic. And I could see why, even though he had not been elected president, he was the significant figure that he was. Um, mm. And talk about optimism. I mean, Nixon was still president. Right. Um, and so you, you could, I mean, Hubert Humphrey, the Democrat could have been all in the dumps. He wasn't, he was talking about all the things that Democrats needed to work on. And I just, I remember that interview vividly because I, you're right. I was covering Georgia politics, Jimmy Carter, Lester Maddox, um, members of Congress from Georgia. Um, I got to know John Lewis before he served in Congress. He was one of the principal figures, of course, in Atlanta as it worked its way through that civil rights era. Do you have a sense even then that this is somebody who is going to be with us in some yes. form or another for a long, long time? He did. And it was, it was a young John Lewis. And of course, he had already experienced what he had experienced in the, exactly. the, you know, the civil rights era of the 60s. So by the time I started reporting in the 70s, he was well known. But of course, we didn't know then that he would go on to be the figure that he was for decades. Uh, Julian Bond uh, yep. was a member of the Georgia legislature. Yep. For him. So there were people who um, left a deep impression on me in, in that period from the far segregationist end of the spectral, Lester Maddox, uh, all the way to, you know, to the other end. But but in terms of national figures, it was probably Humphrey. 
probably Hubert Humphrey. Judy, going back to those first days of reporting on the legislature in Georgia, to where Georgia sits now politically, how do you process all of that? And what has been, in some ways, you could say, well, it's been a long time, right? Yeah. 50 years. But to the conversation we had just had about optimism and not being cynical, a lot has happened over the course of 50 years in Georgia. Could you have imagined in 1969 that there would be an African-American senator uh, from Georgia, a Jewish senator from Georgia? A Jewish senator from Georgia. No, not at all. I mean, they're, 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 the numbers, first of all, weren't there. Uh, the percentage of the black vote was much was smaller then that I don't know exactly what it was in the late 60s and early 70s, but certainly smaller than it is today. And to see how the black vote has been mobilized, has grown to be such a force in that state um, is something that I didn't envision, certainly in the early 70s. Um, and you, you, of course, in the interim, you had already had, you know, LBJ, President Johnson, um, and, and signing the Civil Rights Act in the 60s, and then the movement of the South toward the Republican Party. But that was still happening when I was covering Georgia in the early 70s. And so um, you could see it, you could see spurs of it, if you will, but you you didn't have a sense then that the state was going to become overwhelmingly Republican. I mean, we, you know, it was Herman Talmadge and Richard Russell, who were the United States senators then, who were very much part of the segregationist South. Uh, right. I mean, fascinating politics then. I wasn't privy to all this, but of course was aware of what a force Richard Russell was. That's right. He, he and LBJ, you know, as we now have learned, you know, work together and not together and not on, right, on a, on a number of issues. But, um, but who knew that Georgia was going to be where it is today? That's right. With the, again, with the black senator, as you said, pointed out, a Jewish senator, um, with two Democrats after right. years of sending mainly Republicans to Washington. It's a sea change. We'll see what happens in the future. For anybody who, is interested in American politics. It's been fascinating to see what's happened in the state of Georgia. Absolutely. We're all looking at these other Southern states to see what kind of change may or may not be underway. South Carolina, North Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi. There's an interesting race in Mississippi this year, the governor's race, um, Democrat, Brandon Presley, who's a relative of S. Elvis Presley. <laughs> That's right. Cousin running for governor. We'll see. I mean, the Democrats have been written off in in the southern state, but we'll see. Judy Woodruff, thank you for joining us today on this episode of The Odd Years. Be sure to follow The Odd Years on your favorite podcast platform. Leave a review. And if you're a Cook Political Report subscriber, check out our exclusive bonus content at cookpolitical.com. See you next time.